From PRN, this is Chandler Davis. In this episode, I get to sit down with Dr. Iki, an emergency medicine physician, to discuss how physicians can get involved in the pre-hospital care setting and also in technical rescue. I hope you enjoy. My name is Brian Eakey. I'm one of the emergency attendings at our local hospital here, but also a VCOM grad uh, back in 2007, and I'm also pretty heavily involved with the pre-hospital scene here. I do a lot of uh, work with the volunteer rescue squads and am the medical director. So what first drew you into emergency medicine as a career? So that's an easy question for me. I actually was a computer guy uh, back in undergrad, so I did a lot with uh, computers and computer engineering, but joined the Volunteer Rescue Squad as a means of trying to find something new to do. Uh, so it was completely new to me. I had no background whatsoever in medicine, uh, sort of grew up in medicine through the volunteer system. I became an EMT and later a cardiac tech, which is sort of a, a fancy Virginia sub-paramedic. And then later I went on to get my national registry paramedic. Uh, but it was actually the volunteer rescue squad that got me into medicine. So I was uh, working as a computer engineer when I happened to come across uh, Dr. Mr. Fred Rollins, who was working as an ER physician, and he got to talking with me. Uh, and, you know, I was a paramedic at the time, and he mentioned that VCOM was getting ready to open, uh, which is something that really sort of opened my eyes to the possibility of a career choice. Uh, and I guess you could say the rest is history. I ended up uh, stopping being a computer engineer and going to VCOM, and now here I am as an emergency physician. Was there anything about uh, computer engineering or what you're doing for your undergrad degree that was like you wanted to switch because of that? Or was it mainly because of the pre-hospital care setting, your experience in that, and how much more you liked that over your undergrad? Yes, that's another great question. Um, you know, I really enjoyed uh, several aspects of engineering and certainly any of the, uh, you know, the science technology majors are all, I think, fantastic uh, foundation for medicine. But the biggest thing that I didn't like was office work. Uh, so I didn't like, you know, being in a place where, you know, clock in, clock out, and there was very few windows and very little opportunity to go and do other things. So pre-hospital medicine and then later emergency medicine uh, really caught, uh, you know, sort of was really important to me, something I really enjoyed. And it's simply because it's never boring. You, you never know what you're getting into every single day. Uh, you go in either, you know, on the ambulance or in the ER. Uh, you can think that you've seen it all and you can think that, you know, you have this wealth of knowledge. And you, and you know exactly how to approach everything. And just when you're pretty sure that you've seen everything, you know, boom, something else will come along. And you're like, wow, I have absolutely no idea what this is or what to do about it. And you sort of go back to the drawing board. And so always being uh, engaged, always being entertained and, and excited about what may come in next uh, is really something that I find extremely satisfying. You touched on it a little bit, but um, the fact that you're involved in the pre-hospital care setting currently and that you've been involved with it for quite some time, what is your current status in the pre-hospital care setting? What do you do? Like, what are you involved with with the local rescue squad? Just for those that are unfamiliar. Yeah. So for any of the listeners that have either had EMS experience or thinking about, you know, trying to incorporate that into their, their medical career, you know that the majority of pre-hospital medicine, the majority of people on the ambulance are pre-hospital providers. So specifically, you know, you talk nationwide, you're talking EMTs. Uh, there's a, per, a curriculum, a program that's sort of intermediate uh, in between EMTs and paramedic called advanced or intermediate. And then sort of the upper echelon of pre-hospital providers or paramedics. A lot of that is going to be uh, a uh, bachelor's degree in emergency medicine or an associate's degree in some type of you know pre-hospital care at the paramedic level. The, the EMT level is actually something that just about anybody can get into. The barrier there uh, is not huge. It's a, you know, about a semester class um, where you can get in and come out and have your national uh, EMS EMT. 
Uh, but those are the fundamental levels of EMS. So as a physician, your engagement in that is much more limited. So again, if anyone's ever had experience with pre-hospital care, uh, what you would be doing as a physician is being the director. So each rescue squad in the entire United States, any EMT, any paramedic anywhere that wants to quote unquote practice medicine in the field uh, does so under a very unique agreement with their medical director. Because if you think about it, most people that are authorized to practice medicine under someone's license, say like a nurse at a nursing home or, or anything like that, or I mean, even in the hospital, um, they're doing so on a physician's orders. So the doctor has met that patient, has established a patient-physician relationship, and then has left orders to be completed and somebody else can carry those out. And that makes sense. But pre-hospital is unique because the physician that's giving orders for that, that has left standing orders, has never met that patient before. So there's no pre-established established patient-physician relationship. So there's some sort of specifics in the law that go over it if you're interested. But the, what it comes down to is uh, each EMT, each paramedic has their own OMD for the rescue squad that they're on, their operational medical director. And that physician gives them the ability to practice medicine, sort of quote unquote. And it's not really under their license or using their license, but that's essentially the way you could picture it. Uh, and they use standing protocols to be able to practice medicine in the field on a patient using a physician's orders, but not necessarily having that having that physician have had a prior patient-physician relationship. So that's usually the way a physician gets involved in pre-hospital care, is by being the director, reviewing calls after they happen, writing the protocols that then the paramedics or the EMTs would use on actual calls, but rarely actually going into the field. That's not a very common thing. Uh, there are some bigger programs around, especially if you're in a large city, New York, or uh, like a good program is uh, Austin, Texas, uh, has a, a very strong physician um, presence in their EMS uh, response program. But it's very rare that a doctor would actually go out into the field. And, you know, you have to have a program that's so big and so well-funded that you could essentially pay a physician salary and pay for physician malpractice, which, again, is extremely uncommon. Usually, you'd find it in big programs. Like I mentioned, Austin has, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I haven't checked it in a little while, but uh, recently was piloting a field ECMO program, which is just crazy. They would go out to people's houses uh, that, you know, had a successful CPR event and they would put them on cardiac bypass in the back of an ambulance, which is just amazing. And there's other big programs that do stuff like that, but maybe not with the physician in the ambulance. Cause I mean, they, they actually took surgeons into the field in Austin to be able to, to cannulate and do that sort of thing. Uh, but there's other big programs that might have a telepresence of a physician. So there's a couple of uh, big city ambulances that actually would have one ambulance designated to say the, the stroke ambulance. They'll actually have a built-in CT scanner in the back of the ambulance. Uh, and then you'd have a neurologist uh, telepresence in the back. So you'd have, you know, a couple screens and cameras, and then the doctor would not be on scene, but would be there live to help, you know, triage stroke and that sort of thing. So those are some of the unique ways a physician can get involved. But if you're in a small little community like this and you grew up with a local EMS agency, there's nothing saying you can't be a volunteer. So you'll find it. It's not very common in the state of Virginia. There's only about eight or nine of us that volunteer uh, on the local rescue squads. And myself and Dr. Stanley and Dr. LaPera are three of the eight.
that I know about um, that do it as volunteers. There are a few more that you know are paid directors, and they're fantastic also. Uh, but what we do is we provide that medical oversight. We are the operational medical directors, so we write the protocols. Uh, we actually have the great fortune of having a very, very well-supported regional EMS council that uh, very much supports all the medical directors. So uh, we also serve as regional coordinators, uh, along with several other very good OMDs uh, that actually write and set protocols for most of the agencies around here. So that's sort of our, our physician role there. Uh, and we do that for many squads and for the region. But then the other thing we do is we're full on members at Blacksburg Rescue. And I mean, I can't say enough good things about Blacksburg Volunteer Rescue Squad. Um, I joined in 2000. So I've been a member for two decades plus and just love it. So besides all of the medical directing that we do for our rescue squads, not just Blacksburg, but other rescue squads regionally, not just the region, we also volunteer as members of Blacksburg Volunteer Rescue. So like for me, you know, you, as a volunteer, you can be on call whenever you want. And, you know, if a call goes off, well, that's great. You can go or not or whatever. Um, but there's always a crew that's standing by to be ready. We always have a primary and a backup ready to go 24-7 um, at the rescue squad ready to go. And so if you want and, you know, depending on how you join and, and your membership status, uh, you'll have so many hours or so many groups that you, you're required to, to provide for the volunteer service. Uh, but like for me. Uh, Wednesdays are my day. So I could go on any other call. I could participate, especially if it's a bad one. Sometimes people will call me and then I'll just go from whatever I'm doing. But on Wednesdays, I'm scheduled. So on Wednesdays, I run during the day and I am the primary supervising uh, volunteer for Blacksburg Volunteer Rescue. And if something goes off, then I have declared myself as the one that will go. So there's a duty to act there. And you can't just be like, oh, well, it's inconvenient for me. I'm not going to go. So you actually sit down and you say, hey, I'm going to be the one to go. And I see you looking at me funny. It is technically a Wednesday that we're recording this right now. So I actually had to call and get somebody to cover me uh, while we were here doing this podcast, which obviously we swap back and forth. That's not a problem at all because we've got a huge volunteer base uh, and they they really enjoy what they do. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to be here. But that's how I participate with rescue squads in general. Um, that's how a physician would participate with the rescue squad in general. But it's also kind of unique because that's how we participate with our squad. Do you think that there's more of a area to grow for physicians to get involved with volunteer specific rescue squads in the sense that you are outside of just the protocol management and the OMD level, but also as a member and responding to calls as a volunteer? So I'll tell you, for anybody that's interested in pre-hospital medicine, one of the really nice things about it is you can be boarded as a pre-hospital physician. It's actually a subspecialty board uh, that's brand new. Uh, to be EMS boarded is actually something that has only just recently come about in the past five years. It's a one-year fellowship. Uh, so I would encourage anybody that wants to get involved and in, say like the big city kind of things and be that doctor that's going to go and be the paid director. You'll probably need to seek out an EMS fellowship. Um, there's many EMS fellowships that are connected to ER residencies. So if that's something you're interested in, I encourage you to seek it out. But if you find yourself you know, wanting to do primary care, family medicine, urgent care, anything like that, and you're not really going to pursue that, you know, career of, I want to be paid to be an EMS doctor. I just want to help and give back to my community. Any rescue squad anywhere that's, you know, small, that's volunteer, would just love to have a doc. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be that you run calls. It could just be, hey, I'm going to be your 
support physician. I'm just going to come and give a monthly training. Once a month, I will do a training for you guys. If you wanted to get a little bit more involved, you certainly could be an OMD. Uh, the procedure for that, so the medical director for a rescue squad, the procedure for that varies um, from state to state. So I encourage you to check out your state and what you'd want to do. But in Virginia, it's not difficult. Uh, there's some uh, continuing medical education you need to go to, but I mean, the, the barrier is, is not difficult to be an OMD. And then especially if you have a small volunteer agency that is close to your home, I guarantee that they would love to have your participation in whatever capacity you'd like to. Um, I will say that if you're interested in actually running calls, so being physically on the ambulance and going out with them, that does require some commitment. And it's not just because, you know, they don't want to, uh, you know, have you there. They absolutely do want to have you there. But to run in the ambulance is much different than just about anywhere else you practice medicine. So I'm, I'm happy you, you touched on this because I'll tell you what I think. Uh, the big thing, you know, especially if we've got med students listening or people in residency, you'll already recognize that most of what you do in your career is to be the thinker. So someone else will aggregate data for you, be it the lab or x-ray or radiology or whatever. You'll get some physical data on your own, you know, through physical exam, that sort of thing. But even then, it might be a med student reporting to you or it might be the nurse that actually took the blood pressure or something like that. But your job as the physician is to be the thinker. So if the blood pressure cuff breaks, you never even hear about that. The nurse just fixes it and then goes and gets you a blood pressure. So what you do is you ask for blood pressure, somebody gives you the numbers. Then you compute the, you know, the thinking in your head. And then as the thinker, you spit out what you think is the right thing to do about it. And again, you may know the very, very specific details. I'm in the ICU. Oh, their blood pressure went down. Oh, I want to increase their, their presser from 0.03 to 0.04. You can, you can have a lot of knowledge about the details, but I would challenge anybody in their ICU rotation to actually go up to the pump and try and push the buttons to make it go from 0.3 to 0.4. Uh, and then even if you knew how, what if it gave you an error, how you would troubleshoot that? So most of your medical career, you will be the thinker. The reason that the uh, back of the ambulance is different is because you have to be both the thinker and the doer. So if the blood pressure cuff breaks, you need to know how to fix it. And if the oxygen is not coming out of the wall, you need to know how to swap a tank out. And if you don't have the right kind of EKG leads, you need to know how to tape the other EKG leads on or a thousand other things that you can't really find a specific resource for. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff out there, certainly a lot of good YouTubes and podcasts for paramedics, you know, high-speed EMS, that sort of thing. But what what all that uh, problem solving really comes with is exposure. You just have to be out there. You have to be out on the ambulance. You have to be doing it routinely because even if you had it completely down, the second that your rescue squad goes and buys a brand new ambulance, I almost guarantee that it won't be exactly the same as all the other ones. So it's not only do I have to know how to change the oxygen tank on, you know, for my ambulances, it's 51, 52, 53, and 55, and 56. But then we have one non-standard ambulance, which is 57. And so you have to sort of understand the little nuance and the little difference. And it's not good enough to just be the thinker in pre-hospital medicine. If you're going to be out there, you have to be the thinker and the doer. And the final thing I'll say about it is it's not even just knowing how to twiddle the dials and fiddle with all the bits. One of the other problems in pre-hospital is you're it. They called 911 and they got you. So it's not just being the technician of knowing how to do things, but it's also a very 
delicate balance of resource management. So in the hospital, you know, if you can't get an innovation or the line's not working or you don't have access, you can even you can always, you know, try your senior resident or the attending can come in or if I can't get as the attending, I can call a surgeon or I can call anesthesia or something. And if I, my hospital can't handle it, I can call for the helicopter and have them transported. There's always something. But when somebody calls 911 and you show up, and it's you as a doc, and maybe you've got like two EMTs, and you know something bad happens, and you're like, okay, we need to run this resuscitation. You can you can call for more help, but there's no guarantee. And for the first 15 or so minutes, it's probably just the three of you. So you can even run that through your head as a thought exercise. Like, how would I do that? Like, what would I prioritize? Would I spend my effort as a doc, you know, with 10 minutes trying to innovate with absolutely no support? Because the EMTs are great. They do a lot of very important things. Could not operate without them. But they're not set up to be able to back you up as an innovate, to, to innovate. They, they don't have that skill. So they could get you a piece of equipment, but if you don't get the airway, the airway is not there and there's literally no other option. So you might consider that it's probably not the best use of your time to fiddle around with the airway for a long time and then neglect, say, CPR or neglect a, you know, a vascular access and medications. And those are the kind of difficult decisions that you have to look at when you're practicing pre-hospital medicine. So to get involved with the rescue squad, um, any level that you could give to a volunteer squad as a doc, they would love. Um, some of it's really simple, like, hey, I'll just give you a couple trainings a year. They would absolutely love that. Um, the next step up would be going through the, the process to become certified as an OMD, get involved in your local regional councils, get involved in helping with protocols. Um, again, all squads would absolutely love that because, again, especially if you're asking to do it for free, very few squads are going to stand in your way of providing free assistance to them. I um, mean, that would be the next step up, be an OMD, get involved in your region, stuff like that. Um, and then the next step, which does require some pretty specific commitment, is actually practicing pre-hospital medicine. And one other thing I didn't touch on, but I will mention briefly for anybody out there that really wants to do this, anyone's like, oh yeah, I could I could definitely give that commitment. I, I know I, I have that much time and that much drive. One of the other things to consider is you're practicing medicine in the field and you're not employed to do it. So there are many areas where Good Samaritan will help to cover you, but especially when you start to do it as a, even as a volunteer, it's still professional level of service. Uh, Good Samaritan is limited. So like if I'm, for instance, boarded in the state of Virginia, which I am, and I was on vacation in Colorado and somebody collapsed in front of me by accident, like I wasn't planning on being there. And they said, oh my God, can anybody help? If I lended assist or if I, you know, went up and, and tried to help with that, I am, you're almost ironclad protected from that because it was an accident. You weren't planning to be there. So you were just acting as a bystander and Good Samaritan laws well, I mean, will cover you day in, day out. That's no problem at all. Always offer assistance if you can and you feel comfortable with it. But it changes when you get into the EMS field. So if I go as a volunteer and I respond, that wasn't an accident. I was actually sitting around saying, I will be the person to respond. And the way Good Samaritan looks at that is you're kind of signing up for that. I mean, you are signing up for it, but the way that they see that is, well, since you signed up for it, somebody else didn't. So you don't get that kind of protection that you would if it was just an accident that happened in front of you. When you are when you are sitting there declaring yourself able and ready and willing to respond to an emergency, you take on a certain duty to act. Uh, another good example would be if there was a car wreck in front of me, but it didn't look very serious. And like I had to go pick up my kids from school, like 
it would be okay ethically and legally for me to say, okay, well, I mean, you know, everybody's out. That looks okay. I don't need to go over there. I can just bypass that accident. But if I'm on call with the rescue squad, and it, even if it's a very minor accident, no injuries of any kind, if they request us to go, I can't just be like, oh, no, that, that looks okay. I'm just not going to go. That's, that's um, dereliction of duty. I mean, that's the abandonment, essentially, and you can be sued for that. So there is a fair amount of liability that you take on by being a volunteer doctor wherever you are. And that's true of, you know, like if you're going to go volunteer in a, 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 you know, a clinic or something like that, uh, anywhere you volunteer as a physician. But most of those places that are going to say, hey, yes, we're set up to take volunteer doctors. One of the things in your contract, you know, if you're going to go volunteer at the free clinic or something like that, or you can go on a medical mission or something, one of the things in that contract will be liability, will be malpractice insurance. It comes along with 99% of those things. And if you ever want to volunteer, you should make sure that you have insurance for that. Uh, but if you offer your services to a small volunteer EMS, there's a great chance they've never run into that before. And there's an even greater chance that their malpractice will not cover you because paramedics do carry their own malpractice. Uh, but if you went to that same insurance underwriter and you're like, hey, neat, we're going to have a doctor now uh, who's going to do a bunch of stuff that's a lot more risky and could be potentially a lot more litigious, uh, not every single EMS insurance agency will take on a physician. So you have to make sure you seek out insurance. So if you're going to volunteer to provide medical care, Make sure you're carrying malpractice. And there are a couple of really good uh, agencies out there that will do it just as side policies. Uh, there's actually a great one um, out west whose name escapes me. But if you you know Google uh, EMS Physician Insurance, they're like one of the first ones to pop up. I actually carry that. Uh, specifically, I pay for it out of pocket. And so a lot of people are like, that seems insane that you would you know want to do this so much that you're not, no longer even volunteering. You're paying to do it. You say, yeah, that's true. Luckily, uh, my job, uh, Montgomery Reader, excuse me, Lewis Gale Montgomery Hospital and Blacksburg Volunteer Rescue uh, both really realize uh, the benefit of this. So they actually reimburse us for that insurance, which is really good. But it's critically important that if you wanted to practice medicine, that you realize that you're the doer and the thinker. Recognize that, you know, the, the fiddly little bits of actually providing care can be pretty detailed uh, and that, you know, resource management really plays into it. And the final thing is, if you want to really practice medicine, make sure you've got yourself covered, some type of insurance for pre-hospital. Yeah. If there's, if there's anything that I remember learning from my experience in volunteering for a rescue squad was that what can happen will happen. And when it does happen, it gets a little crazy. Um, but Let's kind of move on. I think you touched on a lot there, and um, I'd love to dive into a ton of it. There's a lot that I learned from what you brought up, especially the malpractice stuff. I Unfortunately, uh, my ignorance didn't really think about a lot of that stuff, but it's, it's a great point to bring up. Um, let's kind of transition a little bit and dive in a little bit further into the pre-hospital care setting because I know that there's a lot of, um, I guess you could consider specializations in the pre-hospital care setting. So like ropes rescue, wilderness rescue, confined spaces. Can you touch a little bit on your experience with that side of pre-hospital care? Sure. So I would love to talk about that. I mean, you get me going on regular EMS and now you're going to start talking about technical stuff. I go all day on this. Uh, one of the other things that really, really is exciting for me as a person is I like to be outside doing things. So anything that involves being outside, like I'm on board with. Um, I like to joke and Dr. Stanley, I think would agree with me here that we really enjoy any sport where you have to be smart not to die. So if there's a sport where you can probably survive by being smart, uh, 
Um, but maybe not if you kind of let your judgment lapse. Like we're we're on board with that. I mean, we're uh, licensed skydivers, licensed scuba. I've been doing some uh, uh, decompression, deep sea decompression scuba, some uh, cave scuba recently, and I really really enjoy that. But it's the same kind of thing where if you mess it up. Uh, your your bailout options are small. Uh, I mean, not zero, but they're small. So you have to be paying attention. And where that touches with rescue is a lot of these extreme environments and extreme sports uh, don't have a huge amount of medical presence in them. Uh, so if you talk about, you know, I call 911, I need an ambulance for a heart attack, you can get that in like 99% of the country. That's no problem at all. Uh, if you get lost out in the woods and your, or, you know, your family member gets lost out in the woods and they haven't come home, uh, you know, they're a lost hiker, they're overdue 12 hours and they're somewhere on a mountain somewhere. And you don't really know, uh, you know, you can get that in probably three quarters of the country, but how much you're going to get uh, varies wildly. Virginia has a huge wilderness SAR program that's just phenomenal. So in Virginia, you're pretty well covered out west, uh, especially where anybody's backpacking a whole lot. They've got a very, very good system out there as well. So you can get some wilderness search and rescue without too much trouble. But the further you go, the harder it becomes. So you're not just now outside. You're not just outside on a mountain, but you're outside on a mountain rock climbing. And say you fall, you know, you'll probably be able to get somebody that can get you out of there. But whether or not they're a professional mountain rescue team is unknown. It just depends on where you are and who's available and who gets called first. Uh, and then if it gets even worse than that, you didn't just fall, but you're actually stuck on rope or, you know, you're halfway up a cliff face and you're in a safe spot, but you can't get up or down or you broke your leg or something and you're stuck in the middle of a pitch. The ability of someone to come up there and get you on rope uh, becomes very, very unknown. Now, out west where there's a lot of big climbing areas, they have specific mountain rescue teams that will come get you. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of thing, same thing. That's going to be a highly specialized wilderness type of pre-hospital environment that might not even have EMTs. That might be primarily climbers, like in a climbing club that have some first aid assistance that then the local police department knows that they can call. So that doesn't even really have any medicine involved in it. It's just climbers. So if you're interested in a sport like that or interested in a, a little niche area and you can bring medical expertise to that, you will absolutely find a home. And that's actually pretty simple if you're already a member of a club. You like to do, you know, paddle boarding or, or anything swift water or raft guiding or any of that kind of thing. All of those organizations, even if they don't serve as a primary rescue function, uh, will still want medical training. You know, they want all their raft guides to have first aid, stuff like that. So if you want to get involved in that, absolutely approach those people. There's a great chance that they would take you up, uh, you know, as a volunteer to be able to help. Now, specifically, when you're talking about some of the things that we do around here, uh, since myself, Dr. LaPera and Dr. Stanley are very much into the outdoors and we enjoy it and we enjoy doing those kind of things, uh, we feel very fortunate that Montgomery County and specifically, uh, town of Blacksburg and Blacksburg Rescue very much support um, specific resources to be able to help out with some of these more austere environments. So Blacksburg Rescue actually has two primary arms, two goals. One of them is what we would consider typical or standard EMS. With an ambulance, you get you know an EMT, a paramedic, that sort of thing. Uh, the primary treatment is stabilization in the field and then transport to a hospital. We have a whole other arm that is completely devoted at Blacksburg Rescue to technical rescue. And this, again, is something that's uncommon. I mean, this is something that if you really wanted to get involved with, you can come join Blacksburg uh, or you can try and start up a program at another area or, you know, join a mountain rescue association out west, something like that. Uh, but around here, we have several technical rescue disciplines that are exceedingly sort of 
odd and off the beaten path. Uh, one thing uh, that my, again, myself, Dr. Stanley, Dr. Perra really enjoy doing is caving. Uh, it turns out there's an awful lot of caving around here, you know, spelunking for the nerds or whatever, but caving, going underground. Uh, and I mean, I could talk for hours on caving and cave rescue, but it's just one example of a thing that is highly specialized. If you get, you know, eight or 10 hours back into a cave and you get hurt, uh, just as an example, you know, you're that far underground, you can't radio out for help. A cell phone doesn't work. GPS doesn't work. I mean, it'll turn on, but there's no signal because you're underground. Um, so if you get hurt eight or 10 hours back, it's eight or 10 hours to get out to the surface to call for help. And then it's eight or 10 hours to get back into where the person was that's hurt. And then it's at least double or triple that to get them back out to the surface. So you get underground for a little while and you get injured. You can be talking two or three days uh, to get out. And that's even if it's not life-threatening. You just broke your leg so bad you can't walk. Now suddenly you're stuck there for two or three days. So Blacksburg Rescue does actually run one of the state's only cave rescue teams. There's some other squads that dabble in it and there's a lot of good resources around the state that we call all the time. Uh, but if you were to call, you know, Virginia Department of Emergency Management and you said, hey, VDEM, you know, the, whatever, our local rescue squad has some people trapped in a cave. Uh, we don't know how to get them out. Um, do you have any resources to help us? Uh, VDM would say, yeah, call Blacksburg, Virginia. Um, they've got the cave rescue team. They'll go out and they'll do it. And we'll do that. Luckily, it doesn't happen very often. I mean, maybe once, maybe less a year. But we had one uh, just a few years ago where five people got stuck in a cave. Uh, and there were lots of good emergent volunteers, lots of good people uh, there willing and ready to help. And they were uh, invaluable. We couldn't have done it without all the people that were already on scene. Um, but it was highly technical. There were multiple different pitches that had to be rigged with rope rescue and rebelays and, and different uh, counterbalance systems to be able to get those five people out. And luckily, they're all okay um, because of that. So that's one thing we feel really fortunate about is that Blacksburg and the town of, and town of Blacksburg and Montgomery County have that foresight to be able to provide that resource because it's not just locally. Um, it's actually, I mean, it makes a big name uh, for them all over the state. And I think they realize the value in that. So we appreciate that. But it's also a lot of fun. So, you know, if you're out there and you're thinking about like, how can I get involved? Um, maybe I'm not super excited about just, you know, uh, running back and forth on the ambulance. If you want to really get involved, especially out west, there are a lot of uh, mountain rescue associations and actually the the overriding the sort of the the uh, one that's in charge of them all, the MRA, the Mountain Rescue Association, um, would love help. And again, you can get involved at multiple different levels, uh, just maybe providing some trainings versus actually taking some of their classes versus becoming an actual operational asset. And this extends to a lot of different things. So I mentioned caving. We do a lot of wilderness search and rescue, but also wilderness evac. So that would be taking medicine into the field you know, four or five hours down a, a trail or they do, you know, medevac helicopter kind of stuff. Uh, and you go in there with limited resources. So we talked earlier about, you know, being the technician, being the one that has to do the things. When you start, start to talk about austere medicine, not only is it I have to know how to do the things, but I'm the one that's in charge of, say, what gear should I bring? So like when you go underground or go out into the wilderness to help somebody and they're like, okay, they have a broken leg. Like, what kind of pain medicine are you going to bring? How much? Is it going to be injectable? Is it going to be pills? How many days am I going to have to provide that for? What if they have an allergy to it? Because I don't know until they get there. So should I bring a backup or something like that? And thinking of all those little specific details, I mean, you're you're off any standard script. I mean, there's a couple of smart people that have written smart papers about this. But this is, I mean, this is cutting edge, bleeding edge kind of stuff. So if that makes you excited and you like to think about that, definitely look around in your area for any type of technical rescue or wilderness rescue or austere rescue kind of uh, community. And you will absolutely be absorbed. They would love to have medical input. Awesome. Just a 
couple more questions, kind of wrapping up here and kind of random ones, um, separating ourselves from just a pre-hospital care setting. I kind of like this question because I think it brings some interesting insight into the provider. But um, the first question is, what type of patient is your favorite patient? Not necessarily, I'm more focusing on illness. Um, like what kind of illness is your favorite to take care of or emergency uh, in your case? And then the second one, very random, but uh, again, I like the question is what what is your favorite book or is there a favorite book that you've been reading recently? So the first question I like a whole lot, what's your favorite patient? In my mind, it's not even necessarily a specific illness or an injury or anything like that. Um, my favorite experience in the pre-hospital environment is when you arrive on scene and you recognize that someone is having the worst day of their life. And it could be for anything. It could be because they're not even that injured, but their car is totally destroyed. Or they're having a big heart attack, but they're not sure. Or they're just having a lot of chest pain, and they're not sure if it's a heart attack, and they're scared. Or it's not even that family, or it's not even that person, it's their family that's been injured, and then they're having their worst day, and it's their child or something like that. But you roll up on a scene like that, and you're able to do something. So you're able to be the person that comes in and says, I know what to do. And even if it's not actually physically doing anything. It's just bringing that reassurance to the scene. And it can be other first responders. You know, you got some firefighters running around. They're like, man, this looks bad. We don't know what to do. Or, you know, a police officer that's like, oh man, you know, this is all bad and we're not sure. And, you know, there's a little kid over there and et cetera, et cetera. Being able to show up and know that your training, that all the, the effort and time and hours and years that you put in, just like you guys listening right now through med school or whatever else you're doing, taking that training and then being able to use it to turn that worst day into something that's not quite as bad. So you go up to them, you say, look, I know this looks really bad. And you know, you're not wrong. There are a lot of bad things going on right now, but recognize there is a way out of this. You know, you get these people that are just completely blinded by the fact that they have no idea how anything could possibly survive or change or be different. Like how is tomorrow even going to happen? And you're able to take your training, take the things, take the knowledge that you've been given by other people before you, by all the great teachers or by all the great professors and experiences that you've had before. And you're able to give back to the community and say, Hey, look, um, I recognize this is your worst day ever, but here's how we're going to get through it. And then to be able to see how that really helps people. Like, I mean, that, that is uh, in a nutshell, why I really enjoy uh, doing what I do, why I really uh, love being out there in pre-hospital. Uh, and then I'll tell you, uh, one of the latest books that I read that I think was just a spectacular book um, has to do with scuba. So I mentioned that, you know, we like to do any type of sport that's dangerous and you have to be thinking. Um, otherwise, you're going to get in big trouble. Uh, so one of the things I really like to do, and because of COVID last year, uh, we had to cut short most of our, you know, things we like to do. We couldn't even go caving for a year um, because you're so close to people. And, and, you know, even if you wore a mask, if you got hurt and you had to have a big cave rescue, um, you'd be putting hundreds of people at risk. So we didn't go caving. Uh, but turns out you bring your own air supply scuba. So it's not that big of a deal. You can be right next to somebody and you won't get COVID from them underwater. Uh, so I started to really do um, a lot more technical scuba. So we'd be doing like like I said, uh, deep sea wreck penetration. Uh, we went down, did some stuff in the Atlantic, did some stuff in the Gulf Coast. Uh, and then, you know, driving around to those places, because obviously you're not flying or anything with COVID, but driving around to those places, you have a lot of time. Uh, so we would get into audiobooks or whatever else. And the, the book that uh, I really liked recently is called Shadow Divers. Uh, and Shadow Divers is a book about some ultra technical scuba um, that doesn't have a whole lot of medicine in it. It's got some interesting, uh, 
philosophy on risk balance when you're trying to do things at the cutting edge. And it's also got some really interesting uh, pathophysiology on decompression sickness. So if it's ever anything you've ever wanted to look into, it does a pretty good job. Uh, but the book also does not uh, you know, sugarcoated at all. Uh, several people die, and, and it's a it's a true story um, about uh, some scuba divers uh, that find an old uh, Nazi submarine and they're exploring it. So, if you're interested in uh, the art of technical scuba and uh, don't mind a true story that is not at times all that happy, I certainly would recommend it. Awesome. Well, we'll end that there. Um, I really appreciate you coming on, Dr. Yiki. This is awesome, and you I learned a ton and uh, covered more than I thought we would be able to in the short period of time. That's no problem. I really appreciate you having me on. I hope everybody's uh, doing well. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. This episode was hosted and produced by Chandler Davis and edited by Peter Samuel. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. This is PRN.